0: As a clinician, one spends a fair bit of time requesting tests from the laboratory. But how much time does one actually spend learning about how to request the appropriate test, what the test background is performed, and a whole host of other questions? What we've always actually needed when learning about this is a book called How to Request a Test. And fortunately, that's exactly what we finally have. We also did a book review a couple of months ago. So if you're keen to listen about more books, Um, Episode 27 was a review on a book called Bacterial Genetics and Genomics. So this is Microbe Mail and I'm your host, Vindana Chibabai. My guest today is Professor Tom Boyles. It's great to have you join me on Microbe Mail today, Tom. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself?
1: Yes, hi there. Hi, I'm Tom Boyles. I'm an infectious disease clinician principally. Um, I was born and initially trained in the UK. I've been in South Africa now for 15, 16 years and uh, I've largely worked as a clinician um, with some research interests and currently I'm at uh, the Helen Joseph Hospital um, and also work for Right to Care and the Clinical HIV Research Unit which is based at Helen Joseph Hospital.
0: Awesome, it's great to have you here Tom and then Ruan is back to co-host with me again today. Ruan, I think you kind of have to decode your name for our listeners because I've always introduced you as Ruan Mare but it's a little bit more complicated than that am I right
2: so my actual name is Gert like G E R T right and that's a and that's a family name but my mom was not so keen on the family name so decided <laughs> she will call me Ruan okay and, and that's what has happened um it, it caused quite a lot of confusion on day of one of grade 1
3: I I'm registered
2: sure. I'm at school as Hart but I didn't know my name was Har. Oh,
3: but, shame. Uh,
2: yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's, uh, uh, that's uh, the gist of it.
0: Okay. And the confusion continues to this day. <laughs> yes, yes. Okay, great. So if anyone's looking for Ruan, you actually have to look for Gert Murray.
2: Uh, nowadays, I, uh, uh, I respond to both. just Just, just to, to simplify things, yeah.
0: Okay, great. So before we head on, a couple of reminders before we get into the discussion. Remember to sign up on the Micromail website and you'll receive email updates when we release a new episode. You can follow us on social media. We've got a Twitter account, Instagram and Facebook as well. Remember to go ahead onto your favorite podcast player and give us a rating, please, if you like what you're hearing. And remember that Micromail germs are also for sharing. So if there's somebody in your contact list or your network who you think might appreciate or enjoy this content please go ahead and share. So are we ready to head in?
3: Yeah I'm ready.
0: Awesome. So let's start by asking a couple of general questions Tom. Can you tell us briefly sort of as a summary a little bit about the book and also why and how you decided to write it?
1: yeah so i actually started thinking about this book about 20 years ago and i actually pitched it to a publisher back then and thankfully the publisher said no because it i didn't definitely didn't have the experience to write it back then and and i was going to call it how to make a medical diagnosis easy and understandable or something like that Mm -hmm. and so i've been thinking about tests and anyone who knows me has worked with me know that you know if there's a question from the audience in a talk it's been for me it's likely to be about questioning someone's use of tests Mm. So it's just been an interest of mine. And so eventually I got around a little bit of time and I'd given many talks on this topic before. um, So I had lots to work from my my own work, the background and and finally got around to putting it into, putting it down. I pitched it to Oxford University Press and they this time said yes. And they've been very helpful in, you know, bringing it from, you know, typing it down out into an actual paper book and obviously an, an online book. Um, and there's also including some videos that I wrote um, for a course that I, I put online a few years ago.
2: And Tom, who do you envision is your as your target audience for this book? Is it a, a book that you would imagine being prescribed as part of a year in medical school, or do you think it's more appropriate for possibly practicing clinicians?
1: Yeah, so it's interesting. I mean, I, I pitched it as uh, for medical students and junior doctors, and because... Yeah, that, that's who I pitched it for, and that's how I would imagine it. And I, you know, I'd love to see if people like it. I'd love to see it in the reading list for medical students. Um, and that's when I, when I wrote a, um, an online course and an in-person course at UCT. I, I, it was for medical students. Um, but you know, a little bit tongue in cheek. You know, it's pretty clear that quite a lot of senior doctors don't understand these concepts. You know, some senior doctors do, of course, but quite a lot don't. I mentioned this through the book that you know people, you know, many senior doctors tell you about the sensitivity and specificity of a test, but they don't really understand the shortcomings of that. So, you know, I'd like in a slightly telling cheek to uh, suggest that some more senior doctors also read it and um, to catch up a little bit on their learning. But, but the reality is it's going to be a book for junior doctors and, and medical students.
0: Thanks, Tom. So I, I think what you're saying is quite pertinent because perhaps that was a gap in learning and understanding of the more senior doctors some time back that, you know, perhaps – how to make the diagnosis wasn't delved into as much detail as it should have been. So it's really great that you're saying it should be towards the junior doctors as well as those at medical school so that we bridge that gap and make sure we fill in or plug those holes that were there previously, but that it's written in such a way that it can be accessible to a clinician who's senior and still wants to kind of um, fill those gaps for themselves. It's great that you've got videos as well. I think moving into the current era and digital learning, et cetera, it's it's so incredibly important to have um, digital tools for learning purposes. So I want to challenge a little bit more from what you're saying in terms of who the target audience is and ask you how you envisage it being used. I don't know whether you can elaborate more on on how it should be prescribed, et cetera, as a learning text.
1: Yeah, well, I think... I don't think somebody's going to stand in front of a patient and open the book. You know, like you know, when I was junior doctor medical student, we had like that little yellow book from Oxford mm. University Press, and, and we all had it in white coat pockets. And I'm sure these days people would have it on their phones or something. And, you know, and we might open that book almost in front of a patient and, and look for the, what, what we were dealing with. I don't see it being used in that way. But I I think it's, a, it's a, something that someone could read cover to cover. It's not very long. Uh, it's only like thirty thousand words, 100 pages. and um, I think when you're getting into that sort of uh, year four five, six of of medical school and you're starting to think about tests and someone's maybe even asking you about them and um, before you become that first year intern and we know those first year interns and second year interns they're often
3: mm-hmm. they're
1: often given the task of, of requesting tests that you have an understanding of what you know what tests are all about. Yeah. and you know in a way it's the sort of thinking behind it behind making a diagnosis is something that becomes intuitive and that's one of the reasons that not all senior doctors necessarily need need to understand it i mean they need to understand it so they can teach their juniors but um people who are good diagnosticians are making these decisions based on experience mm. but the idea of the book is to bridge that gap is to is to explain to a junior what's going on in the brain of a senior doctor mm. when a you know the beginning of the book is a anecdote from my own experience where uh, a a senior doctor uh, there was a patient who it was a young patient who we didn't know whether or not she was pregnant she'd had a negative pregnancy test but she had lots of other features in keeping with pregnancy and um you know we were thinking about prolactinomas and mris of the brain and all this kind of thing Mm -hmm. and the senior doctor walked onto the ward round and and asked for a repeat pregnancy test which was positive and then we we were thinking well oh what now you know it's a positive test as a negative test and the senior doctor just knew that the woman was pregnant through her experience she knew this woman must be pregnant yeah and calmly said she's pregnant cancel the mri cancel all the blood tests and inform the lady that she's pregnant and and the senior doctor doing this wasn't using you know bayes theorem and working out likelihood ratios and, and thresholds and things the senior doctor was using her experience mm. of years and years looking after people but the idea is to give an insight to junior doctors and what processes were going on inside her brain even if she didn't it wasn't you know conscious that she was doing it mm. and so it's to sort of jump start people into that so they can get to that point quicker than they would otherwise have got to that's the that's the kind of rationale for the book
2: thanks so I really, I really enjoyed the, reading the book from the perspective of a laboratorian in particular, because I mean, diagnostic tests is, tests are day to day. Everything, is, everything is about sensitivity, specificity, pre-test probability, etc. So, just to, and uh, in particular, I, I really found the example you gave of a test for death quite poignant. But just to to put it in, into context for our listeners, are there any common situations in which you think Current diagnostic microbiology, specifically, is lacking in terms of a condition that we that we treat, but that lacks a actually lacks a sensitive and specific test.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I think the point of the book is that partly is that if we're only thinking in terms of sensitivity and specificity, we've, we're not doing the patient justice. Tests, as I as I tried to point out, ask ask or attempt to answer patient relevant questions, and so. You know, if you know, let's take a a condition that we look after, where you know we know the tests are inadequate. Let's say, let's say, let's take TB meningitis. I think it's a good thing to pick on. It's one of the hardest diagnoses I have to make as a infectious disease clinician. Ironically, pe- people often write in in articles unreferenced that extrapulmonary TB is hard to diagnose. Um, that's often written. It's actually not true. Extrapulmonary TB is usually very easy to diagnose. Actually, um, in particularly in patients with HIV, at least. Except for TB meningitis, which is which is the opposite. It's actually very difficult, and so you know we could really use a, a test um, for TB meningitis. But the and, and we know the test isn't adequate. But the question we're asking ourselves is: Should we start this patient on the treatment for TB meningitis? That's the that's the question we're asking. And as with all tests, it depends on the pretest test probability, and not just the test itself. And so you know, there, are although you know, let's take expert ultra as the the best test that we have. Um, that, that can be done in you know a reasonable amount of time. and um, there are some patients in whom you know the pretest probability is kind of equivocal, where a negative expert ultra will change our management into not treating the patient. If the pretest probability is on the sort of low side, um, a negative test will help. If the pretest probability is quite high, then a negative expert ultra Although it'll reduce the probability of TB meningitis, it won't reduce it to the point that we stop, whether we don't want the treatment. Mm. So I don't like to think of it in terms of there being a, a tests with adequate sensitivity and specificity. It's more a question of whether there are tests which can change our treatment decisions and how often they can do that. So even a, even a test, you know, even an expert ultra, in some cases, cases it will we know when it's positive we're going to treat the patient basically i mean more or less every time it's positive we're going to treat the patient when it's negative sometimes we're going to treat the patient anyway and sometimes we're not going to treat the patient so you know i I just want to get people's thinking away from this idea that there are these sort of perfect tests that will work in all settings or these terrible tests that will work in no settings the reality is that you know no test has uh, to use the language of bayes theory likelihood ratios there's almost no test that has a likelihood ratio positive of one and a likelihood ratio negative of one. That would be a test that hadn't gave no additional information. That doesn't really exist. All almost all tests give some diagnostic information. The question is how much and is it relevant to the patient in front of us. Mm. So um, yeah, I think when people read the book, they should they'll hopefully get that idea that you know all tests pretty much all tests shift our probability our thinking about a patient to some degree question is how much and is it relevant?
0: I think you've, you've answered most of what I'm about to ask you next. Um, so sort of the flip scenario would be where you've got a myriad of different tests available to make the diagnosis, you know, with tests with differing sensitivities and specificities. You've already alluded to how you'd probably go about selecting which one to use or which one to offer. Could you possibly give a little bit more, expand on that and, and give any other yes. examples?
1: yeah absolutely so it's it's all about the questions that we're asking so you know t, um you know they say a sick patient not, not a tb meningitis patient but t, tb is a good thing to sort of stick on mm. we've got different tests available to us for trying to determine if, if we want to give somebody tb treatment again we start with the question does should we give this patient tb treatment is the, is the question that we're asking the patient in front of us and we've got different tests we've got LAM. we've got sputum tests. Um, you know, now we've got GeneXpert cartridge, Gene Expert cartridge mm-hmm. um, KEFID cartridges with proteomics and genomics and things. Um, and the question is, which test can, in this patient in front of us, which tests are there which can change our treatment from either don't treat to, to treat or treat to don't treat? And that depends on pro- pretest probability. It depends on our threshold for treating. To what level are we going to treat the patient? And then it, and to some degree, the availability and cost. So these things become relevant. You know, mm-hmm. lamb is straightforward, cheap. Um, urine is almost always available, but we know that its negative likelihood ratio isn't isn't that that low. You know, in in old money, the sensitivity isn't that high, mm-hmm. and so you know it may not be the right test because we're going to treat somebody regardless of the lamb result if the if the putative protein is high. But in someone where things are a little bit more equivocal, we might, we, it might be a useful test. We know that the positive likelihood ratio in old money specificity is relatively high. It's not infallible.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so we might choose that test. For example, we, we use that test in all of our patients with cryptococcal meningitis, and we know that 20% of them will be 20 to 30% will be positive, even though we were never really suspecting TB particularly. Um, you know, are the, are these patients with cryptococcal meningitis have got low CD4 counts and they're unwell. So you know, we're always worried about TB in those cases with HIV. But so LAM might be the right test there. And a similar, you know, another patient may be able to produce sputum, and an expert ultra might be the right test. Or they may not be able to produce sputum. When we don't have um, sputum induction, and so you know, LAM might might add some value.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you know, it's of chest X-rays to consider. So what I'm really saying is that it's kind of horses for courses as we would say in, in England, is mm. that you choose the test based on the individual patient in front of you, their pretest probability, their threshold for treatment, and what's available to you. And at some point, you know, it comes down to cost it will come down to cost in in terms of what which healthcare setting you're working in.
0: Yeah. Thanks.
2: Okay. So you mentioned uh pretest probability and uh, I just want to to hear your thoughts on tests that we might be wary of in, in South Africa. Um, that might have been licensed um, internationally, and uh, including guidelines based on differing pretest test probabilities for or whatever condition, and uh, that that we should just uh, consider um, how we use them in South
1: Africa because we obviously have very different disease prevalences. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, that's the fascinating thing about infectious diseases is, is that, unlike most specialties, the conditions that you deal with are highly geographically variable. Um, you know, if you deal with cardiology then you know okay there are differences in in terms of risk factors but you know largely around the world and um, you're having similar diseases but infectious diseases you can you can have uh you know, the, the things that are different in cardiology are largely the infections certainly in neurology the, the differences around the world are largely the infections rather than anything else and so you can have uh you know 0 pretest probability in one country and you know 50 percent pretest probability 90 percent and another so I mean let's look at South Africa what, what's what got a very high pretest probability is well TB we've mentioned a few times and so uh, in, in low resource settings for example people use igra tests mm. now it, you, know, you can question the value of, a, of an igra test but in a very low pretest probability setting a positive igra tells you that this person's actually been exposed to TB and is producing an immune response and that might even help you with a diagnostic decision, typically we think of IGRA as a test that tells us whether someone is going to be uh, likely to benefit from TPT, TBT preventative therapy. And um, we know largely, at least outside of HIV, that if the, if the IGRA test or the um, skin test is negative, then TPTs are not likely to be effective. And so we think of it as that, but actually it might provide you in a, in a low pre probability setting. It might even push you towards treating for active TB. Whereas in South Africa, um, you know, that's just not true that we know that so many people have been exposed to TB that the rates are very high, regardless of whether you've got active TB or not. And we also know that in HIV, the test becomes negative again in people with florid TB. So, you know, that test becomes essentially a very limited value. As I said, no tests have very few tests have zero value, but it becomes a limited value. So we don't do Igrid tests in South Africa. I mean you could just you could think of any test that has that then for any condition that's uncommon in South Africa and you know there are you could choose many but you know let's I mean Lyme disease let's think of Lyme disease just as, as an example we're pretty sure there's no close to no Lyme disease in South Africa um possibly none um and so you know what's the point of doing a Lyme test in someone who's never left South Africa, it's basically zero. And, you you know, you'll get some positives, particularly if you start doing things like Lyme serology or something, you'll end up with some positive tests when the PUTO's property is zero. So that can only cause confusion. Mm. So essentially any any tests, uh, you know, for a condition that basically doesn't exist, you know, we, you know you're not going to find New York, don't Well, actually, that's not a good example of New York because I think we've seen a few cases. And, of course, things can change. Mm. And, of course, people tra- people travel, of course. So I'm not talking about people who've travelled. You can find any condition whatsoever if someone's travelled, but um, for people who haven't travelled, you know, you're not going to you're not going to find Talaromyces in South Africa. It just doesn't. So why test for it? Right. So you know that's one of the things that is so interesting about about infectious diseases and also about travellers because what as soon as you start thinking about travellers, suddenly you've got the whole world's worth of infectious diseases um, open to you, right. and, and things become.
2: I always have to be wary of uh, IGM tests in particular that, uh, that are frequently Iggy or fond- uh, G- <laughs> Yeah, true. But I mean, uh, so often you're just uh, reviewing results and you see every IGM test that the clinician sent is just positive and you just know n- it's just like low grade false positivity and you worry about
1: which one of those IGMs is going to be picked to be treated. No, exactly. No, exactly. That's a good example of a test where, the positive likelihood ratio is you now I say one is means it's absolutely meaningless, but it's like 1.2. So it like shifts your thinking a tiny amount towards it being true. And almost never will that be of any value. But for many IG tests, not all of them, you know, some that we would really like um, aspergillus for example, will be a really is actually a really useful test, which we don't actually have available. So, you know, every test is different, but yeah, in general, IGMs are um, often positive, <laughs> often very low positive likelihood ratio.
0: Yeah, just also reiterating the importance of having a discussion with the laboratory before you request a test. As you're saying, Tom, you know, when you're thinking about travel, the entire world's problems are are open to you. So very important to have that discussion with the lab in terms of what they have on offer for what you might be suspecting. So Rowan and I were like quite interested to read the chapter on on treatment thresholds. And, you know, we thought we'd put together a couple of scenarios and, and get your thoughts on it. So, Ruan, we've got two. I'll go with the first scenario and, and maybe you sure. can go the second one. So specifically how you'd go about determining a, th- a treatment threshold for this case. Um, so in microbiology, we're increasingly seeing a situation where we may not reach the no further investigations available type of condition due to the expanding test repertoires. But the time and the cost and the complexity of accessing each additional test is actually incremental. So for example, for a suspected meningitis, you may start with a CSF gram stain, move on to CSF culture, CSF antigen tests. CSF PCRs are now available for common pathogens. There's syndromic panels available for CSF, which are PCR based as well. Um, there's also CSF panels for the uncommon pathogens. There's serology. There's metagenomics available. Um, so, just your thoughts on that, Tom?
1: Yeah. Again, I think you have to go back to the. In every case, is different. But I mean, let's take an example. Let's use a clinical example. Somebody who has clinical features of meningitis, so they mm-hmm. enter into the, you know, the box of of meningitis. And and you know, the, I always teach the medical students the most important question. Once you once you've turned switched your brain to meningitis thinking is acute or chronic. Mm-hmm. but you know let's say you know you could choose one or the other you, you if say if you do a lumbar puncture then, you know your first question is often uh is this bacterial meningitis and so gram stain you're going to do and you know we treat the gram stain as if it's got a a positive likelihood ratio of infinity essentially so if the gram stain is positive then the diagnosis is confirmed and you and t- in terms of asking your question that does the patient have bacterial meningitis? You can stop there when it's positive. You may have follow-up questions, which are drug sensitivities, or there might be epidemiological reasons for, for um, going further in terms of outbreaks or something. But you know, you can often, from a point of, am I going to treat this patient for bacterial meningitis? You can stop at a gram stain. But Let's say the gram stain is negative, and then your next question might be, is that you, you may still treat the patient because the clinical features are in keeping and we know that a negative gram stain isn't going to be a perfect test. So your next question is the culture positive in the same patient? Fair enough. Um, if the culture is positive, similar to a gram stain, essentially confirms the diagnosis and you can largely stop there. But if the, you know, if the culture is negative, then you might move, you can keep moving forward. But at each point, you're you're asking yourself the question, you know, largely in this scenario, you you will have treated that we're talking about let's say in the, the relatively acute meningitis. Um, where you we know that the tests aren't perfect. So your patient will be on antibiotics. You're largely asking a question, can I stop the antibiotics? So you're mm. looking for a test with a you know a reasonable negative likelihood ratio to reduce the uh probability below the treatment threshold. But you're also, you know, when you're talking about these extra tests, these um PCRs and you know biofires and things for, for uncommon pathogens, this will be in the patient who's not responding, mm. presumably. I mean, the reason to you know, if someone's responding to their antibiotics that's fine but now you're into a scenario where you've got a patient who's got negative gram stain, negative culture you know on treatment let's say you're treating already treating listeria and and other common pathogens and they're not getting better now you're now you, you know you're asking yourself a different questions like should i treat this patient for brucellosis or something and mm. um, totally different question so at each point you you know you have to th- ask yourself what's the question What's the probability now at this point? Now, now you know now someone's had a negative gram stain, a negative culture, not responded to antibiotics. You know what's the probability now? And what's my threshold for treating at each point? Mm. And then you, as I sort of intimated, there are points at which you can stop because the patient's getting better, or uh, and you're you're kind of happy that you know uh, finishing however many days of antibiotics is probably a reasonable course of action, or because one of the tests is positive and you've confirmed your diagnosis, and you can stop. But you know, if those things are not true, then you may carry on, and that's how you end up down this path. And you, know, you may end up as you, you know. I, I don't know much about metagenomics and carrier tests that you've mentioned, but um, you know, if the question is valid and the test can answer the question, and you can afford it from a public health point of view, then the test is still on and still it becomes appropriate. Mm-hmm. Right. But you may, you know, it'll be rare that you get that far. That's true. Um, but yeah. not never. It's not never.
2: Then, just as a follow-up or or an alternative example, how do you think about your test selection and and subsequent testing um, when you are faced with uh, treatments that may alter the performance of your tests? So, for example, a a patient presented to a peripheral hospital and got a dose of Keftriaxone, but they didn't have the facilities to do an LP, um, and then arrives at your site, with some clinical improvement, um, but a negative gram stain and a negative culture. Do you, uh, how how do you think about those
1: situations? Yeah, so I think the the, the answer is that that pre-treatment changes the likelihood ratios of the test now. So I think it's important to realize that when, you know, I'll use the old-fashioned terms of sensitivity and specificity and, you know, what those values are, those values are the results they're not something intrinsic to a test. They're the results of a diagnostic accuracy study. They're only as good as the study, and they're only as good as the patients included. So if you did a diagnostic accuracy study of gram stain in patients who'd not had antibiotics, you'd get certain sensitivity and specificity. If you did that same study in patients who'd had antibiotics, you'd get different sensitivity, specificity, likelihood ratio. So, and we know that they, we, you know, we're pretty sure that they would perform less well. So So the performance of your test is different in the different um, population. In this case, someone who's had antibiotics. So, you know, you can do, again, you can do the gram stain, but in this case, you know, the negative gram stain doesn't reduce your probability as much as it would in the patient without antibiotics. Your negative culture doesn't reduce your probability as much either. So, you know, in this scenario, you might well have a negative gram stain and a negative culture, and you might keep going. Because you know the test isn't as useful, whereas if you've got somebody who comes in and you're 100%, you know, it's often in South Africa, it's difficult to know if someone's had antibiotics before, but let's say you're 100% sure that the person's not had antibiotics, they've got a negative stain. they've got a negative culture, then, you know, you might say, okay, I'm going to stop my antibiotics now. I'm happy because these tests have significantly negative predictive value, negative likelihood ratios are low enough that we can confidently exclude it below the, the treatment threshold. So um, yeah, that's how I think about. I think about the population that mm. was used to derive these values. You know, is that population the same population as the patient I'm I have got in front of? These values, sensitivity and specificity, are not intrinsic to the test itself in any way.
2: Yeah, no, I, I think that's often a uh, overlooked concept that the the sensitivity and specificity, as you say, is not is not a feature of the test, but is a feature of a study that was done. And, uh, you, you can't really quote the sensitivity of a test, but you only really the sensitivity of your validation study in your lab, which again, why it's important to, to chat to your lo- laboratory to see what is the performance of the test that you're using day to day. But, uh, 100%. just moving into, um, quite a topical area at the moment of AI and medicine, which uh, I, I mean, I, I saw a, a figure the other day of, the rate of new users for various applications compared uh, comparing like new users on facebook new new users and instagram and and at what rate they were accumulated and i mean chat gpt is just exceeding all of them so i i think it's 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 not uh it's not far off where we will be seeing applications of um, ai and machine learning in clinical medicine
3: Absolutely. so
2: i thought i i might ask uh Chat GPT to ask you a question and uh, the, que- the prompt I gave it was ask an author of a book on machine learning in diagnostic medicine one question. So the question it, it came up with was probably was, well definitely better than anything I could have asked. So <laughs> it asked uh, what do you believe are the most important ethical considerations that need to be addressed when using machine learning in diagnostic medicine and how can these considerations be integrated into the development and deployment of these
1: technologies?
0: Wow.
2: <laughs>
1: yeah, so look, I, I agree with you. I think, you know, there are already machine learning technologies which are usable in medicine. Uh, the most the furthest forward, I would say, is probably retinal imaging. So uh, the diagnosis of di- uh, referable diabetic retinopathy. Is already, um, you know, fee- feasible to be done by uh, a non-doctor using retinal photography. That's mm-hmm. just—I just say that's, that's progressed, but there are many others, including um, chest X-ray interpretation and in, in TB and other things. Mm-hmm. So very much so. And ChatGPT, you know, I, I asked it the first question I ever asked it was write the introduction to a, a paper on uh, diagnosing TB, and it wrote me a very nice something I could really work with. Um just my own writing process. So you know it's already useful. Um, but to answer your question, I mean I've divide it into three things um, data, privacy, and confidentiality. So I think it's important to use um patient data from machine from machine learning models, it must be done with respect to the privacy and confidentiality. Yeah, absolutely. Um <clears throat> and the data used for training the model should be de-identified always. Um is very important and should only be accessible to people who have access who have legitimate access. And then there's the concept of bias and fairness. Machine learning models are only as good as the data they are they're trained on, and so any bias in the data will lead to bias in results. And that's uh, very important, particularly for uh, gender and racial biases. I think. Mm. Uh, it's important to ensure that data used to train a model is representative of the population being diagnosed, which we've kind of already discussed, um, and that therefore the model is is fair and unbiased. And then I think explainability and transparency, it's important to be able to explain how a machine learning model arrives at a diagnosis, particularly if it gets the wrong diagnosis. Um, And patients and healthcare professionals must be able to understand the reasoning behind a diagnosis and be able to question it when necessary. So that's my answer. And uh, you you may or may not be surprised to know that that answer comes directly from ChatGPT. So I put your question back into (laughs) ChatGPT. Just to show you that um, it answered the question much better than I ever could, and uh, I think it's a very good answer. Um, I agree with it, um, but I didn't write it myself.
0: Nicely done, job.
2: <laughs> we're going ha- to have to find jobs that can't be taken by AI soon. Exactly. exactly. The problem. The problem is they can they can draw much better than I can too. So, uh, the yeah. arts aren't really <laughs> safe either. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. Thanks.
0: Until we can actually build machines that can um, take recipes written by AI and cook the food, I think we're still okay for now, Ruan. We can at least be able to feed ourselves.
2: <laughs> okay, so we have at least two months, I think. At least two
0: months. <laughs> at least. So. so the other thing we found quite interesting, Tom, is your discussion on the shortcomings of the MTB expert riff rollout. Quite interesting. Um, would you be able to give us a brief summary of this to the listeners?
1: So th- this you know, just just to start, this is a test that I use myself frequently. So, mm. um, you know, I'm not suggesting that this test should be abandoned, but I think the way it was, uh, has been rolled out, the evidence behind it has been very poor, actually. So if you, you go back to the first paper, um, t- 2010, Katharina Boehm Bur- um, published a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine Showing this uh, new test for TB, and the background being, of course, well, for those who are not aware, that the tests for TB um, in the pre-HIV era were kind of fine. We had a we had um, sputum smear, which was would pick up sort of seventy or eighty percent of the patients, and you know they didn't really deteriorate too much. in the time it took for a culture, which is like six weeks, culture picked up most of the rest, and you, know, you could be quite leisurely about it. Um, we also had a chest x-ray, which was reasonably useful. And you know, this worked reasonably well for you know close to a hundred years, so 70 or 80 years. Mm. Um, and then HIV came along, and these things, all these things changed. So the sputum smear um sensitivity or pickup rate dropped dramatically. Um, the chest x-rays became um atypical. Um, didn't get these nice right upper lobe cavities anymore. And the time taken to make to, the, the speed of deterioration of the patient quickened dramatically so this leisurely approach of oh the smear is negative let's wait six weeks for the culture suddenly if you did that the patient would, would have died so um this this approach which worked nicely in hiv negative patients for 80 years suddenly didn't work at all and you know patients were dying you know and, and of course then also the incidence of TB went up dramatically in, in this hiv population so quite not not unreasonably of course people were like well we need better tests, a better, chest than chest, better than chest X-ray, better than smear, quicker than culture, but so these are not working anymore. And yeah. so the CAFID came up with this, uh, with the GeneXpert cartridge, many people, I won't bore people about, they were aware of, which um, picks up the, the DNA and also gives you a RIF resistance result. And, and the paper came out with a very high sensitivity and specificity, well, it's somewhere very front for me, it gave a uh, sensitivity of... 97.6 percent and a specificity of 98.1 percent positive likelihood ratio of 51 and negative likelihood ratio of 0.02 and so not surprisingly people jumped up and down like this is incredible Um, it also gives us riff resistance which is really going to help mm. and the next day the who endorsed it fine i have no complaints about that but as with you know many of these things what didn't happen was the appropriate next step which was to see if this test actually made a difference to patient outcomes mm. it looks it looks um convincing although as i point out in the book there is a major flaw in that first paper uh, in that it would never pass muster today or it shouldn't and it shouldn't have passed muster then in that there were 105 patients in the study who had what they described as clinical tuberculosis but they had two sputums which were both negative and they included they just excluded them from the, the analysis um and there's no justification for excluding um, for, for excluding those patients those patients according to the way we perform studies now did not have meningitis uh tuberculosis sorry they're two times culture negative they should have been they should have been termed tb negative and included in the paper and that actually changes the likelihood ratios quite a lot so um the paper is flawed but the excitement was real and uh, understandable and so uh, the test was rolled out and i, and I think that was appropriate but then what we what we should have done at that point then was work out how to integrate that this test into uh, diagnostic strategies. So the thinking was, oh, this is so good that we'll just test everyone, and if they're positive, we'll treat them, and if they're negative, we won't treat them, and you know the job's done, and uh, you know everyone will be happy.
3: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: but that's not the case. Uh, it wasn't the case. And what people did was a number of studies of uh, randomising people to gene expert versus uh, sputum smear. And they simply, uh, and essentially all of these studies were, had a flawed design in my view, um, and they all showed no effect. So, uh, you know, we've now got five or six studies where you randomize patients to these two tests and the people who got the expert, no, there was no important difference. There were differences in time to treatment and things like that, but there was no difference in um, things that actually matter to patients, which is morbidity and mortality. They, they don't care about time to treatment. They care about, you could argue about um, transmissibility, but... What individual patients care about is how sick they are and whether they die or not and mm. it made no difference and so you know if you had a drug uh you know, these are effectively phase three trials if you had a phase, five phase three trials of a drug where you compared it to um what was available before and there was no difference then you would you would just dismiss it and you'd say this job doesn't work of course that didn't happen um because the excitement was so large that who had invested huge amounts of time and money and political capital in this test and so even though it was shown to be ineffective in these studies um it was rolled out widely and continues to be rolled out widely and yet you know I'm not calling for it to be removed um, I'm not suggesting that what I'm suggesting is that the studies were poorly designed in that they essentially these these studies just randomized all comers and, mm. and and if you if you get the theme of this book the point is the test tiebreakers there are certain patients who have a Pretest probability that's so high, that even if the test is negative, you should treat them. And there are patients who are so low that even if it's positive, you shouldn't treat them. Um, and that's a major theme of my book. And so if you start randomizing patients with a very high pretest probability of TB to this test, those patients should be treated regardless mm. um, of the test results. Um, and so you can actually do harm and uh, you can actually do harm in that, that group in the study. For example, you, you might find, and you know, we've all as clinicians seen these patients who have multiple negative gene experts, but clearly have TB and, and respond to TB treatment. And if in a study you don't treat those patients because you imagine this test is, is magic, then you can actually do harm in the, in the group of patients randomized to expert. And so it's not in some ways not surprising that these studies were all negative because they were poorly designed. And you know, I think people have just washed it, brushed it under the carpet. They've, these systematic reviews are out there more than one showing this lack of effect. But you know, typical of WHO, they don't really want to confront that. They just, uh, they, you know, they just well, sort of, they just don't confront that that reality. I mean, it's science, it's data, it's real. It needs to be explained. I think I've, I'm try- attempting to explain it as I just have mm-hmm. in the, the tests where the studies were inappropriately designed. But I haven't heard anyone from WHO explain it in that way. And they've continued to roll out this test. So, I think it's a good example of how not to do things. Right. I don't have a problem with the test being rolled out based on the initial data, given how urgent things were. You know, we don't do we didn't do randomised controlled trials of COVID tests when COVID came out. We tested them the best we could, and we and we got them out there. No problem. But with this test, we needed to do appropriate um, studies and work out where and how to use this in the diagnostic algorithm. And I still don't think we know that. As a clinician, I think I know how to use it. I use it when. Uh, for two reasons, either because I the patient is in that middle ground where I'm not sure whether or not to treat them, which is, you know, some patients, mm-hmm. and also if I simply want think it's important to know the rifampicin and resistance, and, and in that case, I'm not asking the question, does this patient have TB? I'm asking the question, does this patient have rifampicin resistant TB? Which is again, if you always think about what your question is, then you might use tests differently. So that's the way I see expert MTB rif. I use it. I think we should continue to use it, but I think. Uh, it's a lesson in how not to uh, evaluate tests going forward.
2: Okay. So with that background, what are your thoughts on the soon to be rolled
1: out XDR cartridge? Um, Are there similar limitations or do you think that's a fit for purpose rollout? It's a good question, um, which I I can't give you a full answer on because I haven't researched it. When I first looked at the data, um no, no i don't want anyone to hold me to this this answer to this question because i haven't looked at it in, in detail when i last looked at the data for the xdr cartridge it appeared to me that um it missed um a number of cases of of xdr compared to what we think is our best reference standard and so again it depends it does depend on the as, as, with, as with everything I've said, it depends on the, the pre-test probability and it depends on the, on the thresholds and then on the accuracy of the test. So this is something I'd like to look at in detail and say, look, if this patient has an XGR cartridge, which shows drug sensitivity, how likely is it that the patient actually has drug-sensitive TB and vice versa? And what treatment decisions am I going to make? So let's see. Yeah. I'd, you know, if we ever talk again, I'll well, have had a chance to look through the data and uh, and and have a look. Um, and see how it goes do you, do you have any data on on that so i mean i also haven't looked
2: at it in detail i mean i i do think as you say it, it's a different question we're asking with the xvr cartridge mm. and i i think it is a reasonable a reasonable replacement for an already molecular test for resistance which in that aspect i think it is a reasonable test but uh if you're if you're using it primarily in the diagnostic capacity, as in whether to treat or not versus what to treat with or not, I, I think it likely will have the same issues that, that you alluded to with the currently used Mtb Rif
1: cartridge. Yeah, so we know there are problems with the Mtb Rif cartridge, um, but overall, I think you know generally we're happy to go with it, um, helping people in rural areas with infectious disease problems. And you know, not uncommonly, every few months we get this case where it's, it's Rif sensitive on the expert and the patient's just not getting better mm. and then it turns out to be INH resistant and you realize it's one of those um resistance mechanisms that's outside the cartridge but you know it's relatively rare and you know i think the probably in, in terms of expert MTB RIF, the, the RIF resistance part is probably one of the most important and it is accurate enough to be to be of great value but i would defer to, to looking at the data on, on xdr but um hopefully it will be an advantage um we need something similar for you know, just just to just to push this, we need this cartridge for dolutegravir resistance in HIV. A, a similar card We need to be able to. Yes. So at the moment, we're in a, a kind of a honeymoon period of HIV treatment. In that we've got a lot of people who were suppressed and happy, which is fine. But the people who are unsuppressed um, on their treatment, we pretty much know that they're all sensitive or not resistant to dolutegravir. Now mm-hmm. that number that is going to change. And of course, it's not already, it's not it's already, it isn't a hundred percent of people who are sensitive, but we know, you know, for more than 99% of people are sensitive in the, in the coming years, we're going to, that's going to change. And so, you know, we, we already pretty clear, we don't, we're not typically that bothered by nucleotide resistant mutations, but we are going to be very interested in dilatogavir resistance. So if we could have an XGR cartridge, a cafe cartridge or something similar, which could not only Amplify the RNA, but we could also look at that resistance mutate the key resistance mutations with dolotegravir, That would be a huge advance, I think, for us um, in the coming years as 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 DTG resistance starts to become a problem. Right now, we're kind of ha- we kind of know from RDS study and and the background prevalence that almost any person can have uh, TLD. It's not available. Maybe um, dorotegavir will treat almost every patient, but this is. 2023 and if we had this discussion in 2025 that would not be the case I
2: recently well, we recently had a similar discussion at a at one academic meeting and um, uh, a technology at least that, that jumped out at me as a, a potential something to explore would be um, so uh, I'm sure a lot of our listeners have heard of CRISPR-Cas and there are alternative CRISPR-Cas enzymes which basically have been applied to to the development of essentially rapid point-of-care bedside molecular diagnostic tests. I mean, if if we if we could have something like that, where we could at the point of initiation with a with the equivalent of a lateral flow assay size piece of equipment, make that call. Versus, uh, though I I do agree that I mean something like a, a Cepheid cartridge or DeltaTiger resistance would also be extremely useful, but. I mean, I think if we can get to the point of a point of care molecular test for dilute resistance where most of
1: these patients are being initiated, I mean that would be a game changer. But yeah. That would need. be extremely helpful, I think. Yeah. Um, I don't know I don't know much about CRISPR cas I don't know if you've got time to explain it to the listeners and myself, but if you could accurately determine doltical resistance in a clinic, I think in the next five years that would be very, very important.
2: So uh, I, I mean this yeah this, uh, it was entirely a, a theoretical um, application, but just very basically, uh, CRISPR-Cas has two components: it has a, a sensor and a, an effector enzyme. And uh, there are various CRISPR-Cas enzyme combinations, um, and some of them can very broadly sense RNA or or specific DNA sequences. And what you could theoretically do is have uh, a sensor for those mutations, which activates an enzyme. And the enzyme essentially degrades a compound which generates a color change. And uh, for example, the company that's that's developed one of those applications is called Sherlock. And uh, I think in the study that they evaluated, they applied it to the useful diagnostic of arboviruses. And I mean, it is basically a a bedside point of care test, which, um, but yeah, I mean, we're, we're digressing now into... <laughs> into completely uh, uh, a different topic to TV, but yeah, it's, it's still diagnostic tests.
0: Okay, great. So we're almost towards the end, Tom. Just a couple more questions. Would you say there are any age or gender specific issues to note when requesting lab tests that you speak about in the book specifically?
1: Well, I think that I think there always are. I think uh, when you look at test performance, you know, some people who you know, long before me, the, the sort of giants of the field—I've heard them speak. You know, when they talk about the variability in, that in and specificity, likelihood ratios, they point specifically to when something, just like a gender switch, changes the outcome. And, mm. and it goes back to what we said about sensitivity and specificity being a, a function of the group that you you study and the, the outcome of the study.
3: Yeah,
1: and you know, we know that what tests perform differently in different. Um, gender groups and different in different age groups. And similarly, the pretest probability changes based on an age and gender dramatically. Um, mm-hmm. You know, but in my own experience, and I think it's been it's well published, um, meningitis is far more common in men. Mm-hmm. And PCP is far more common in women. Um it seems pretty I don't know the reasons, but it seems very clear that's the case. So, you know, the pretest probability is going to be higher based on the gender of each of those conditions and lower, for example. So I think age, gender affect not only the outcome of the test, but also the pre probability and they should be uh, they are important factors in, in all of our requesting test decisions.
0: Excellent. And then before we go onto our spotlight feature, Tom, one of the most important questions we actually need to ask you on this episode is how does someone get hold of a copy of your book?
1: Well, they, if they just, Dr. Google is great. Um, just Google how to request a test. And it will come up. It's uh, Oxford University Press, and it's available in paper back, which you can order. But it's also available in multiple e-readers, uh, Kindle, and other things. And um, when you get when it comes to e-readers, also has the links to the videos. Um, so simply, simply, well, I've just googled, myself googled how to request a test, and my name Tom Boyles, B O Y L E S, comes up very, very easily. Okay. Um, so it shouldn't be hard to find.
0: Awesome. That's great. Now I was feeling a little bit left out with both of you using ChatGPT, so even though I had a little, I had a little riddle prepared. I decided that I would uh, can my question, and I went ahead and asked ChatGPT to put a quiz question in a riddle form for you, Tom. So take a listen and tell me if you know which microbe I'm talking about here. I'm the culprit behind the Black Death spread. In fleas and rats, my infection was bred. I caused a pandemic that shocked the world. What's my name? You might want to unfurl.
1: So I'm going to go Yersinia pestis. Brilliant. And uh, I believe we well, last time I, when I was learning about these things, we, we remain in the third pandemic of plague right now. We actually are in a pandemic, according to definitions, as my understanding. Um, but it's. You can tell us. You you probably know better than me. But as I, as I understand it,
0: yeah, no, you're absolutely right.
1: Uh, I think it's the third one.
0: Yeah, that's exactly. It. I believe. I don't know
1: if it's true. You can tell me. Maybe you know more. That selective advantage of surviving the plague, because like I think between a third and a, and a half of people died in Europe, and the genes that helped you survive are now some of the genes which drive autoimmune conditions. Uh, I think that might be one of the reasons, apart from other. Hygiene hypothesis: Why autoimmune conditions are more common than, than they used to be.
0: Is oh, really? I hadn't there? heard
1: that. So, the genes that helped you survive clearly there was a you know if if a third or a half of the population are dying then and mm. you know, there are likely to be if there were any genes that protected you from from plague then they they would have a huge selective advantage, particularly with young people dying. Um, and they mm. uh, yeah no, a similar point that a lot of people died from TB and I wonder if that's the reason people like me with European genes, like I've been exposed to TB like a thousand times and I still got a negative regret. Um so I wonder if my genes as a white European somehow protect me against TB. I don't know.
0: That's very interesting. Cool. Thanks for that extra tidbit. So thank you so much time for being a guest on the show. Do you have any last quick closing messages about the book that you'd like to offer to our listeners?
1: I'd obviously like you to read it. Um, <laughs> I don't, don't mind if you don't buy it, but if you—if I would love people to read it, I would love feedback. Any feedback, you can email me on at gmail.com. I'd love feedback. I'd love to get a second edition. Already, things I'd like to put in, and some decision curve analysis, which some of the some of the listeners will know, which is something which um, would be added. So, please read the book if you get a chance. Um, please think very carefully about your tests. Don't do you know what's tempting, which is suddenly stop ordering, stop requesting all tests. <laughs> so just take it slow. Take it slowly. Okay. It's not life and death often. I mean it can be, but you know, just slowly start requesting less tests over time, get a feel for it, and then you're before you know it, you will be a master and you'll be requesting about half as many tests, then you'll get just as many um, correct answers.
0: Great. Thank you so much, Tom. Thanks for joining me. This was a really, really insightful discussion. And I think both Ruan and I have really learned a lot. Any last words from you, Ruan?
2: Uh, No, Uh, just uh, the the Yersinia pestis. I I never knew that. That's my bedside reading for tonight, I think.
0: Good idea. (laughs) Tom, we hope you'll agree to join us again sometime soon. We'd love to pick your brain on a little bit more in terms of TB, HIV, and some of your other fields of expertise.
1: I'd be delighted. Yeah, thanks for the invitation. Awesome.
0: And one last reminder to our listeners, remember to subscribe to Microbe Mail, rate us on your favorite podcast player, and remember to share this and any other episode that you think might be useful for your friends. Until next time, that's it from me, Ruan, and Venita, who's always sitting in the background. We'll see you again soon with more Contagious Mail.